0: Okay, good evening, everybody. Very special thank you to the Mann family for sponsoring this evening. The sponsorship of the class is Iloui Nishmas, both Mrs. Mann's father and mother. Her mother, Chaya Bas Mordechai, whose yard site is the 16th of Cheshvan, and her father, Shlomo Ben Moshe, whose yard site is the 14th of Cheshvan. It's Hashem, through our learning and through the family's continued growth and Connection with the Kaddosh Baruch Hu, and the neshamos should have an aliyah. Thank you as always to Tor Anytime for sharing this class with those of you who cannot be here this evening. And a thank you as always to Isaac for getting everything together with uh, his energy and his commitment. The topic this evening is thriving in chaos, embracing Uncertainty. It's really apropos that we're here tonight as we're waiting the conclusion of the elections. We'll have to see if we have any real answers this evening. The fact that all of you made it out here is actually very impressive. Not sure what there is to be looking at right now, but theoretically, person could be going you know, state by state and watching things as they progress. But it's definitely a good uh, backdrop for this evening's discussion. During times of confusion and instability, we have actually the unique opportunity to gain more clarity in our connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our connection with the Torah, and our connection with ourselves which is counterintuitive. We would assume the more noise and clutter and disruption we have outside or inside, that would make it more difficult to stay focused, to stay connected, to have that clarity of vision. But the truth is, it's really an opportunity to steig. It's an opportunity to actually get closer to Hashem through the instability. How do we do that? How can we look at confusion either in our personal lives or nationally or globally and actually use that as a springboard to elevate myself as a human being rather than just get sucked into the, uh, to the, the waves and the tide of everything we're hearing on the news and everything we're seeing and experiencing? How can I stay focused? How can I actually utilize the, uh, the distraction as a way of, of anchoring myself in the Vodis Hashem. I'd like to also address, this is somewhat of a famous question, we spoke about last week the, uh, the story of Avram and the Kibshan Ha'esh, that he was thrown into a furnace because he was not willing to, uh, to go against his beliefs. He was willing to die for what he stood for, he lived and he died by his values. Now, the famous question is, why is this not recorded in the Torah? And to many people, it's actually surprising when they hear there's no mention of this story in the Torah itself. Seems like a pretty big deal. It was an open miracle that took place. The ancient world was well aware of Avram's survival of the Kivshan Ha'esh. Why is there no mention of this in the psukim themselves? And furthermore, according to the Rambam, This is not one of the ten trials, the ten Nisyonos of of, of Avram. We have ten different trials, and that's a debate amongst the Rishonim as to what exactly they were. But the Rambam's opinion was that allowing himself to die, Al-Pi Kiddush Hashem, was not one of the ten Nisyonos. Sounds like a pretty big deal. It's a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. Why is that not counted as one of the ten Nisyonos of Avram Avinu? So how can we thrive through the chaos, inside of the chaos? And I'd like to answer these more technical questions as well. There is an article in The Atlantic entitled Preparing Your Mind for Uncertain Times. Uh, The author writes that humans abhor uncertainty and will do just about anything to avoid it, even choosing a known bad outcome over an unknown but possibly good one. There is a study where participants experienced greater stress when they knew they had a 50% chance of receiving an electric shock, more so than when they had a 100% chance of receiving that shock. The unknown itself creates more of an anxiety and more of a a feeling of, of ambivalence. I'd rather know what I'm getting into, even if that outcome is not a good one. Now, without looking at the date of this next uh, article, if you were to read this, when would you guess this was written? It's official. We live in uncertain times. Just pick up today's paper, and the headlines are screaming with news that lets us know we are living in uncertain times. Economically, every aspect of life, we have no idea what tomorrow will bring. There's no doubt about it, uncertainty, can be uncomfortable. We human beings are wired to want to control our environment. We enjoy the stability that comes from having continuity between our past and future, a future that's familiar, stable, and predictable. We like to feel that we are masters of our own ship in control of our fate, and so it's entirely natural to find ourselves feeling a little out of sorts when our future becomes an unknown quantity. The reality, though, is that things are changing fast. Unpredictability uh, in the workplace and all around the world. It's those who are willing to embrace uncertainty and take decisive action. Risky action, despite the many unknowns, who will reap the greatest rewards. This easily could have been written yesterday. When was this written? 2015. So on one hand, it's true everyone loves to use the phrase we are living in unprecedented times. And that's true. We've never been here before and there's a lot more to be anxious about. But if you look throughout the articles and the newspaper headings over the last many, many decades, we always seem to find ourselves in a place of instability where people are telling us things have never been this crazy. Now, the one point I'd like to take issue with, is the author writes, in order to actually excel in these times, we have to be able to take action, decisive action, despite the many unknowns. The Torah hashkafa is that real growth and spirituality and our most powerful, lasting, meaningful accomplishments do not come despite the unknowns, but they come because the unknowns. Which again is counterintuitive. But when we're lacking that stability, when we can't quite tell you what the future's going to look like, when we have more confusion than we have any sense of uh, what's actually happening, when we have more questions than answers, more problems than solutions, it's actually in that state of mind we could find more of an anchor in our Vodis Hashem. Now, there are three potential ways to respond to any level of uncertainty or ambiguity. Number one is through despair, through despondency, through just crumbling to the pressure of uh, what's happening around me. The second potential response would be surrender or acceptance. And this is really the ideal we'll find in the secular world. The most you could ask for If you're living in a world void of purpose and void of Torah, how do you get through challenges without the the bedrock of Amun and bitachon? The best you could ask for is coming to a place of acceptance, coming to a place of uh, surrender. This is what it is. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to despair. I'm just living with life because I have no other choice. And the third potential response in how to react in situations where there are many unknowns, is not to despair, is not even to surrender or accept the reality, but to actually welcome it, to embrace it, to say, bring it on! And that's really the Torah Hashkaf. I want to try to explore how do we get to that third response. Not despair, not even acceptance, but to be able to embrace it, to be able to welcome all of the unknowns that we have to look forward to. Option number one is something that's not plausible for the Jewish Neshamba. We cannot despair. Rabbi Huda HaLevi uh, writes in his famous Kinnah, mourning over the loss of Yerushalayim and expressing his desire to return to Eretz Yisrael, he uses the phrase "asire Tikva, which literally means we are prisoners of hope. And that describes the Jewish mentality, that sense of optimism that we've had all throughout the centuries. Sire Tikva, we can't help ourselves but look towards the future, look towards a bright future. And therefore, option number one of despair or despondency or just giving up because I can't take it anymore and crumbling under the pressure, that is not a Jewish response. We find, this is actually one of the ten trials of Avram, when Sarah tells him, we need to send away Hagar and Yishma. And the Pesach tells us that Avram was very distraught over this because he loved Yishma greatly. HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells him, listen to your wife, right? Generally good advice. She knows more than you do. She has Bini yisera. She has more prophecy than you do. Listen to your wife. So he finds the Gevura, the courage to be able to send Hagar and Yishmael away. It says, right after he does so, Bemidbar, b'er He sends Hagar away, and she goes, what does v'tesa mean? And she wanders, and she wanders in the desert of the wilderness of Beersheva. Rashi explains that the wandering was not a geographical wandering, but rather, The Torah is being merameh's, it's hinting to us, that she went back to her old lifestyle of idolatry. So as soon as she leaves the house of Avramavinu, Avinu, Toa, right? She's bewildered, she's confused, and Rashi explains it wasn't just a directional issue. She might have had a wonderful sense of direction. However, she went back to her old philosophies, her old ways of thinking. <laughs> Next week, parenthetically, I'd love to explore the whole evolution of Hagar and her relationship with Avram Avinu, because... It is so incredibly deep and there is so much there for us to gain. It is so rich because she was a tzaddikis. She was an incredible woman. And we see at the end of Avram's life, according to the Chazal, he remarries her. So there's a lot going on with Hagar. Mirzashem, we'll save that for next week. But from this Rashi, it sounds like she goes back to her old ways of Avodah Zorah. So Remeir Tzvi Bergman, he was the great son-in-law of Rav Shach. He was bothered by the question, how in the world can somebody of her stature who was living together with Avraham Avinu, who was in a household of light and love and chesed and prophecy, she had Malachim dancing around her 24-7. And that's why when the Malachim came to her in the Midbar, she was not phased by it. She was not shocked by the appearance of an angel. I see them all the time, no big deal. Somebody on her level of spirituality, how is it possible for her to revert back to a votazora So Bergman explains, he says, The fact that Torah is telling us Tesa that she was lost, being in a state of confusion is never a place where a Jew finds him or herself. There's no such thing as being Toa. If I have that, that real amuna and a and I know my derech of amuna, I have my path and how I connect and how I relate to the infinite. So then, no toa, There's no such thing as being lost, no matter where I am. Gam ki Hashem Orli. Even if I find myself in a time of darkness, Hashem Orli, Hashem is my light. So the Torah here is revealing that maybe she didn't revert back to old-fashioned Avodah Zarah bowing down to idols, but she lost her amuna. She didn't have that same faith she had before, and we know that from the fact that it says she was lost. A Maimin, one who has amuna Shlema, one who has bitachon, is never lost, even if you don't know where you are. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu Imadi, Hashem is always with me. So to take approach, number one, of feeling despair or to get lost within the confusion around us, that is not acceptable for a Jew. Reb Mordechai Pagramansky, he was known as Reb He was the Ilui of Tells. He was a brilliant, brilliant young man after uh, he was one of the few Lithuanian Rebunim to survive the war. After World War I, trying to make a life for himself, he uh, got into business and he did very well. He was able to import uh, high-quality paint from Germany and he created a whole, a whole structure. He Never had any official yeshiva background as a young man. And then one day he met up with Rabbi Elia Lapian. Rabbi Lapian was going around after World War I to different Jewish communities trying to, to teach Torah, trying to inspire, and trying to cultivate a sense of achdus, to rebuild uh, Klal Yisrael. When Reb Elia met Reb he was blown away by this kid's brilliance. And he tried to convince him, you need to go to yeshiva. You have to spend Yomum Valayla learning Torah. You have so much to give to Klal Yisrael. And at first he was hesitant because he had to make a parnasa. He had to support his family. But Rebellia said, listen, just give it a try, do it for a little bit, get the Tom, get the taste of Torah, and then you'll go from there. And that's what he did. Rebellia was instrumental in enrolling him in the uh, Talmud Torah of Kelm. And uh, only after a few months, it was clear that he had tremendous potential. However, with all of the stress and the clients that he had for a few years beforehand, He felt the need to go back to business, and he did so. Rabbi Eliel though never giving up on anybody, especially one with this level of potential, he again encouraged him, you need to go back to yeshiva. You can change the Jewish landscape. And eventually he went back. He went to Tells, and when he arrived at Tells, he was a bocher, and immediately he was just swept away with the Ruach HaTorah, with the spirit of the yeshiva, and people would go to him after only a year or two. And he, he, didn't, he wasn't ligging and learning for years, but after a little bit of exposure, he had such a tefisa, he had such a grasp that people would go to him with questions, not just in Gemara, but in hashkafa. He had a sister who actually was not religious and she was swept away with communism and socialism. And he actually invited her to come to one of his chaburos, one of his discussions on the subject of communism. And after two times having a back-and-forth with his sister, she gave that up and she herself was choser b'tshuva. Eventually, two years before World War II, he moved to Belgium where he became the rav of a community there. <coughs> and uh, Baruch Hashem, things were looking very, uh, very hopeful and his future was bright. Shortly before the beginning of World War II, he went back to Lithuania, that was his hometown, and he went to visit some of his, uh, his Hevra. And he was actually stuck there when the war broke up, and he could, have, he could not have left. So he found himself in the Kovna Ghetto. And living in the Kovna Ghetto, uh, he spent years in pretty much a state of isolation. He didn't have Svarim with him. So Rabbi Faraim Oshri, who we usually quote on Tishbev. You know, one of the, the brilliant minds, the rub of the Kovna Ghetto, he said about Motel that he would be sitting in this room by himself, hidden away, and somehow with tremendous Hashkacha Pratis, he was never found. Throughout the entire war, he was able to stay where he was in his Daladamos, in his little dimension of, of reality, learning Bahasmada with diligence day and night. There was one problem, though. He didn't have any Svarim. <laughs> but it didn't stop him. Rav Raim Oshri writes about Rav Mothal, that he would sit there for hours and hours and hours with no chavrusa, learning Baal going through the Rashba and the machlokus between the Rashba and the Ramban and how it fits with this gemara and Zvachim. He would do that for years and years. <clears throat> After the war, he was part of a, of a group of people trying to go throughout Europe, finding children, tr- finding boys who were born during the war who were not able to, uh, to get a circumcision. So he went together with the Moel and a few other Rebunim and they went literally town to town, village to village, trying to find boys to be able to be mechaim, the mitzvah of bris Mila. It turns out that he heard of a particular boy in some village in Kovna, the year was 1945, right after the war. So he travels there by train together with Amoel and a few other distinguished Talmud Chachamim. And what are you going to do on the train? You're going to talk and learning. And that's what they did. And they got so engrossed in the conversation that they realized they missed their stop. Not just by one or two, but they missed their stop significantly. So the person who was with Rav Motel started bemoaning the fact that, oh my gosh, we have this brisk now we're going to be late, and there could be other children there, we might not get to them, we're lost. So Rammato quoted this Pusik, right? That she went v'tesa and she was lost. Zokta <speaking in> Rashi, <Hebrew> he explained, Rashi tells us the same idea we saw from Bergman that she was lost, that indicates that she didn't have her amuna. Because if you're a Maiman, if you're a balbitachon, then even if I don't know where I am, I'm never lost. HaKadosh Baruch is here. So the fellow said back to Ramothal, It's a nice vort, right? It's a nice idea, but the bottom line is we're lost. We've got to get back and find the village. So they got off at the next stop, and the train back to where they need to go it wasn't for a few hours, and they were sitting there. Some time goes by, and this is a story that's been documented by many. This is not a myth or a fairy tale. As they're sitting there together, a young father comes running over. He sees the rabbis here. He says, excuse me, I just want to know, baruch Hashem, Mazel Tov, we had a baby boy. Do you know of a mole? So of muttle turns to his friend and you see, a yid is never lost. Right? We're all with a Baruch Hu every second of our lives. So, option number one of despair is not an option. Now, the secular approach, which is option number two, is acceptance or surrender. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who, uh, who here has heard of the myth of Sisyphus? Chaim. <laughs> all cultural associations, you know? Chaim is well aware. So, the myth of Sisyphus, I forget all of the background details, but he did something to displease the gods and basically their punishment for him was that he had to push a heavy rock up this mountain for eternity. Right? He would push and push and push all the way up to the top of the mountain. Eventually he would get there and it would roll back down and he would start pushing again. That was his Gezerah, that was his decree for the rest of his existence which meant forever. Some of the secular philosophers have used that as a muscle for man's existence in this world. That listen, we're just busy with nothing, going to work, driving here, going here, making this appointment, getting all uh, obsessed and involved and engaged with things that don't really make that much of a difference. We're all Sisyphus. We're all that guy just rolling the ball up the hill, waiting to get to the top. Then it rolls back down and we do it again. The only way to find comfort in that reality is if you're able to get into the mindset of this is life. I'm not going to bemoan it. I'm not going to cry about it. and I'm not going to complain because th- this is what it is. A person is stuck home Right During the the intensity of COVID, and they have kids running around and trying to get to their classes on Zoom, and they themselves are working remotely, and uh, the computer is not really functioning the way it should be, and the internet is slow. So that's rough. What can you do about it? The answer is nothing. So the secular philosophers would say, just deal with it because this is what it is. We don't just deal with life, we embrace it. I want to paint a picture for you of embracing the instability. And we we shared this on Simchas Torah this past year for those who are in the larger shul. This is actually from the diary of the Eish Kodesh, from Rep. Kolonimus Kalmish Shapiro, Hashem Yochum Domov. In his diary, he says that, I'm sharing these thoughts, Tafresh Sadi Gimel, in 1933. This is after the Yomim Noraim and Sukkot Shemini Seris and Simchas Torah. And right here, he was just putting pen to paper, sharing his hargusha of what Yontif was like. He said at the time of Simchas Torah, where generally we would get enthusiastic about the dancing, I looked up heavenwards and I cried out to all of the neshamos of the kedoshim of our grandparents and our parents who were no longer in olam hazah and I said to them lachem kol sagan elu it must be so Givaldic up there during these days the light and the simcha that you neshamos are experiencing How does that happen? What changes during these special days? Writes the Eish Kodesh. It must be because we're somehow infusing energy, infusing Kedusha into that higher realm. You neshamos, you're dancing because we're dancing. You're You're feeling an enhanced sanctity because that's what we're experiencing. Then he writes... This is why I felt this piece was so apropos for this particular Simchas Torah. As soon as we start getting excited and the joy begins to penetrate the heart, suddenly we have this feeling of bitterness, this sense of negativity. And we ask ourselves, how could I really allow myself to be besimcha?" How could I allow myself to let go and to dance and to feel the joy that we felt on previous years? Kol kach b'tzorosh shakuyim, We find ourselves surrounded by pain. There's so much to be concerned about. There's so much instability. How can I allow myself to feel the simcha? Listen to the response of the Eish Kodesh. This is something he was writing in 1933 but it's something we could definitely apply every day of our lives. We have to be strong and respond to ourselves. Right now I am rejoicing with my God and I can care less what's going on around me. We do our Heshtadlus. We make sure to all go out and vote but I'm not going to spend the next three hours of this evening stressing and watching step-by-step all of the electoral votes. I'm allowed to say, I don't care what's happening around me. Right now, I'm just rejoicing with my God. And he goes on to explain, Right now, everything else is bottle. It's nullified. Ain olam ve'en daigos, there is no world outside of the base kinesis. Ain dagos, there is no worry that I have to think about. Amo imo yisborach b'cholkochi ani m'fazez. I'm with you, Hashem, with all of my force, with all of my energies, I dance before you. Ve'lifnei kavodo ani And in front of you and with you I dance. This is an illustration of what it means not to be broken, not to be obsessing on what's going on, not just to accept or surrender, but to fully embrace, to embrace what? To embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We have more of an, of an ability to turn towards Hashem and feel tangibly that connection when other things are a little bit strange. It's not despite the noise. It's not despite the clutter. It's not despite the confusion. But it's precisely because of it, right? The the example I like to think about is when you have a child who's at home, and they're in their little play area, and they have their toys exactly where they should be, so they don't have to be right next to mommy, and they're allowed. They feel comfortable wandering around, taking off a book, playing with the truck. You take them outside. Right, my one and a half year old, if I take her outside and there's the guy mowing the lawn all right, next door, so then what does she do? She clings on to me for dear life. That's why I always make sure to take her outside when the guy mows the lawn. <laughs> right? Or when there's a stranger or a few strangers around and they're at that age where they don't feel comfortable yet going to somebody they don't recognize. Again, It's a great win for a father or mother. It feels wonderful when they cling on to you like that. But why are they clinging on to me? Because there's there's strange things around them. There's strange people. Some guy just walked into the house with a mask covering his entire face. The sad thing now that's no longer strange, right? (laughs) This is the Jewish approach to instability. We use it as a springboard to embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to almost say, we would not have chosen this, perhaps, if you were to give me an option between A and B, I'm not sure I would have gone with B, likely I would have chosen A, but now that I'm here, I'm going to embrace you more because I can't get lost in the illusion of stability. I can't get lost in the deception of Olam Hazah, of things just going and flowing the way I assume they would. Explains Reb Chaim Scheinberg, Sheinberg, Zecher Tzadik Why is it that there's no mention of Avram jumping into the fiery furnace in the Torah? Why did that not make the cut? Why, according to the Rambam, is that not one of the ten Nisyonas that he had to endure? Explains Reb Scheinberg. what is the definition of a nisayon? What does it mean to go through a challenge? If you were to ask Avram, is, is, it, is it easy to, like, jump into fire? He probably would have said, no. Is that something that you woke up Sunday morning thinking, you know what, I would love to jump into a fiery furnace today? No. It'll make you famous. <laughs> it's okay, right? I have other ways to make myself famous. However, even though it was really uncomfortable, that doesn't count as a nisayun, because a nisayun is when... I don't understand what I'm doing. I don't understand why this is happening to me. But somehow I'm able to embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu and continue, not with the clarity of the situation or the circumstance, but with the clarity of my relationship with Hashem. That's in Nisoyo. When it's going against my human intellect, where it doesn't make sense and I can't explain why these things are happening, I'm living in a contradiction. And to somehow persevere and to tap into that wellspring of gavura, of courage, that's in the Isayon. What Avraham did, was it logical to give up your life for your values? Of course it is. Lahavdil, there are many other people throughout history in different religions who have done the exact same thing. Self-sacrifice can be a very logical, not pleasant, but a very logical thing to do. That's why, explains R. Scheinberg, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, this doesn't make it in the Torah. He did many other things that were much more impressive, like having to send his son away from home. That's illogical! Why was it illogical? Because although we know that Yishmael was involved with many, many corrupt activities, we also know that Avram Avinu with his chesed, it wasn't just that he liked doing good things for people to make them happy, but he was living in this world of chesed where it's hard for me to see your, your flaws. It's hard for me to perceive chesronos that you might have. This is what the Yifei Torah explains as commentary to the Medesh Rabbah. He says, Avram had such a difficult time believing what Sarah was telling him because he had so much love and compassion for Yishmael and he was able to write things off. It says that Yishmal was makriv karbonos. He was in violation of a Zorah. What kind of a Zorah? What animals did he sacrifice? Grasshoppers. Right, that's, that's strange, right? <laughs> if you're going to sacrifice something, right? Nimrod, we're told he would sacrifice lions and chayos. And here you have Yishmol. If you're a Russia, just be a Russia. Go sacrifice something to a vodazaro. Why are you sacrificing grasshoppers? So the commentaries explain that he was doing it in a way that other people looking at him, if they saw, they would think it was schok. It's child's play. He's fooling around. What a cute little boy dissecting a grasshopper, right? That's that's things that the boys do. Sarah understood that there was more to it. There is hashkasa. There is a real, real flaw here. Avram didn't see that. He didn't see that because the love that he had for him was just overflowing and it covered up that, that particular clarity. Sending Yishmael away, that was a challenge. But explains with Scheinberg. anything that we do, although it's difficult, if logically it makes sense, that's not a nisayim. The greatest nisyonos in life are those where we really have no logical or intellectual concept of how this is working, how this will turn out, what the end will be. But having the imuna and keep on going weiter, keep on going further, feeling Hashem holding my hand and guiding me, that's a nisyon. I want to read to you one paragraph from Scheinberg. This is the bottom of page six, where he makes the application to our lives. He says, for every single one of us. Yesh matsavim lamod Bahem. We always have situations, if they're relationships, if they're issues within Ruchnias, if they're financial or medical pressures. We all have things in life that are very difficult. Vzebaf Hashem, and this could take us away from our sense of closeness and our aliyah in our Vodas Hashem. But he writes, "Ad Rabbi. with this perspective of understanding that the definition of a nisayon is having nothing clear except for Hakadosh Baruch Hu's connection with me. <speaking> in <the Bible> it's in this particular state of instability that I could express my love for Kadosh Baruch Hu. <speaking in the Bible> this is my nisayon. This is my test. It's not a distraction taking me away from Avodah Hashem. It's not a hassle I have to deal with this particular person. This is my nisoio. And the more we can find that strength to continue to charting that course even in uncharted waters, there of Scheinberg writes, Mevata beze yosef ve yosef, we're able to express and, and, and tap into that limitless love and mesirous nefesh that we have for Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's why jumping into the fire was not one of the 10 of Avram. That was logical. That's why it's not documented in the Torah itself. I want to spend the last moment here focusing on the Akedah. If you were to ask most people, what was the nisayon of a Kedas Yitzchak? What would you say? Anyone, please feel free. Shmuel's just giving a symbol, a shechting symbol. Yeah. Telling somebody to kill their son is, is obviously a uh, tremendous nisayon interesting for many they will tell you this is the most disturbing part of Chumash for me what do you answer when your child says I learned in school about the Akedah? Tati if Hashem told you to shecht me would you? (laughs) can you pass the kugel? (laughs) (laughs) the best answer is Hashem would not tell me to do such a thing because he knows my limitations I'm not Avram Avinu, but that wasn't the Nisayon of Avram Avinu, explains Rabdesler and many others. The Nisayon of Avram Avinu was the conflict, was the contradiction, was putting himself through such horrific agony, not just at the, 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 the losing of his child, but, but living a stira, living a, a, a total contradiction to everything that he's been fighting for, everything that he's been living for, everything he's been preaching about, now he himself is doing the same thing that he's been telling others is evil, is totally immoral. And internally, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him, you will have descendants through Yitzchak. You will be able to pass on your legacy through Yitzchak. And now you're telling me to shecht my son. How can both of those things be true? What answer did Avram have to that question? He was probably one of the most brilliant people on the planet. His his intellectual prowess, his philosophical abilities, he would debate the the top scholars. And he was successful. He had tens of thousands of followers. What answer did he have to this question? One hand, God tells you, you will carry on the torch of Yadus, of monotheism, through your son Yitzchak. Yitzchak does not yet have children. Now you're telling me, I have a mitzvah to shecht Yitzchak. What was Avram's solution? He didn't have one. There was no answer to that question. But he was able to proceed onwards anyway. I have no answer to that question. And often in life we have many more questions than we do answers. Listen to the description of the Anaf Yosef. Also one of the great commentaries on the Medrash Rabbah. He describes the... The interaction between Avram and Yitzchak. On one hand, we know that as Avram was about to shach Yitzchak, his tears were falling into the eyes of his son, and Yitzchak is described as looking up towards Shemayim. So the Anaf Yosef is bothered by the issue. Why is Avram crying? He, he should be, you would assume, on, on that level of mastery. He should feel a, a sense of simcha. He's doing the the Hashem. He's accomplishing something that's so incredibly difficult. But nonetheless, right? he was crying hysterically. The tears were flowing. So he writes, this is the double underlined. Chazal are teaching us what the real nisayon of the Akedah was. The greatest part of the test during the Akedah was that Hashem was asking of you to do something superhuman. To ask me to totally take away and uproot my feelings of love, my natural compassion for my son, and to do something that superficially is cruel and aggressive, that I could do. But that was not what Akadosh Baruch was asking of him. He was asking of Ram, stay human. Stay his father who loves him more than anything on the planet. Don't get rid of that. Don't uproot that. The, 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 the nisayon here is with those emotions of love and respect and his kashros and connection over so many years. With those emotions still have the gevura to do something that doesn't make any sense because this is the Ratzon Hashem. That explains the Anaf Yosef and that explains Reb Desler. That was the greatest aspect of the Nisayon of the Akeda. But that's really true if you go through all of those ten Nisyonos, the kernel of conflict the, the 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 aspect that didn't make sense intellectually well Avram did not have any answer that's why it was in Isayun. how will you live when you don't know what to say this is why explains Reb Dessler that the Akedah we always mention if there's one thing we always try to tap into the chus of it's the chus of the Akedah. we bring it up all the time yom hanav is obviously it's front and center But Rav says, and and this is an amazing picture of what was going through the mind of Avram Avinu during this this most crucial part of his life. Avram was davening. He was davening non-stop. What was he davening for? Explains Rav There's Mesiras Nefesh, which means giving up one's life, or it could even mean devoting my life to Hashem, but there's something even deeper than that. Which is Mesiris Hanefesh haruchanis, Giving up even on that which I feel is morally correct, even on that which I relate to spiritually, if this is the Das Torah, if this is where A Baruchu or, or, or the Gedolim are directing me, even though it may not feel right. That's called Mesiras, not Nefesh in a physical way, but it's Mesiras HaRuchnias. I'm giving up even what I held on to as my connection for so many years. I'm willing to transcend that now. So explains Reb the tefillah of Avram Avinu during this moment was, HaKadosh Baruch please. This feeling of total Hisbatlus, this feeling of nullification that I'm experiencing right now where I have no clue how any of this makes sense, and I have no answers for all of these piercing questions, but I'm able to subjugate my ratzon to your ratzon, and to therefore have a, an inner sense of simcha, a pain, an anguish, but a sense of simcha, because the clarity is in the relationship. My tefillah is that you should instill this within the DNA of all of Klal Yisrael throughout all the generations. That was the tefillah of Ramavinu. He wasn't just thinking about how incredibly intense this moment was between his son and himself. He was thinking of Klal Yisrael, and he didn't even know how Klal Yisrael would exist, but Hashem said it would, so it's got to exist. But my tefillah is, I want this not to stop with me, but I want this to be ingrained in the neshem of Klal Yisrael, to have this sense of hisbatlus, of total nullification to the Ratzon Hashem. That was his and that's why we always bring up the Akedah. It's not just, look at what Avram did. Wasn't that amazing, Hashem? Have mercy on me. <laughs> it's so much deeper. It's because Avram did this. So he implanted within my Zaidi and my Bubby and myself and my children the same ability to live with a sense of clarity, to embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to welcome the unknown because sometimes the unknown brings me closer to my mommy than living with comfort and stability. I want to conclude by uh, sharing a tefillah. This is a tefillah composed by Rav David Goldberg in his beautiful commentary to the Shari Avod of the Rabbin Yonah. Really, he, he presents the same idea that we saw from Rabbi Scheinberg and Rav Dessler and he says he onu omdim zu shall Iqfisa de we are standing right now in the ikvisa de meshecha and this we know has been the case for many decades the Chafetz Chaim spoke about ikvisa de meshecha is it around the corner is it around two blocks from here we don't know But the one thing we do know is that Gedoli Yisrael have been telling us now for generations, we are in Ikfuz of the Meshicha and it's intensifying. And we are coming closer to the Geula Asida. Leos Lamod benisyono and therefore what should be really front and center in everything we're doing is not necessarily that we need all the answers to all of our questions, but we dive in more than anything. give us the amuna for ourselves and our families. Leos lamod that we could stand up to tests and challenges of faith knowing that I have you, although I don't know why things are happening. It should be a Kaddish Baruch Ratzon, that he should strengthen the amuna within ourselves, and to strengthen the within all of Kalal Yisrael. And whatever happens this evening or tomorrow, or whenever we find out what the results are, I'm not going to be in a state of euphoria if my guy wins nor will I be devastated if the other guy wins. Because we're living with a sense, HaKadosh Baruch as long as you're with me, nothing else really matters. We should be zochet to have the amuna and the clarity within the lack of clarity. Good job, Bishkoich.